ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey, listeners, it turns out that our collective action can stop more than just global pandemics. Discover reasons for hope on the climate crisis with Heat of the Moment, a new series from FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts. From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, Spies of the UAE. The New York Times revealed that the popular messaging app, TuTalk, developed by the United Arab Emirates, was spyware. The app allowed users to engage by video or text. It also allowed the Emirati government to gain access to user personal data and track user whereabouts. New York Times reports the UAE-based app has been downloaded to millions of phones all around the world, and its alleged ties with the UAE government may make it, quote, the latest escalation of a digital arms race. This wasn't the first hacking scandal for the UAE, which has used surveillance programs to target other regimes and its own dissidents in recent years. This week on First Person, we hear from Joel Sheckman, an investigative reporter for Reuters who co-wrote a series of stories in the past year about the UAE's hacking and surveillance program. His partner on the project was Christopher Bing, also of Reuters. The two reporters discovered, among other things, that the UAE was employing Americans in its secret program, including veterans of the National Security Agency. How did you come to find out about Project Raven to begin with? So it was really kind of crazy, actually. I was like at one of these weird points that I get into sometimes because I work on these long-term projects. And like sometimes, like, you know, I'll finish a long-term project and I was looking for something. And, I, you know, I, I started going back to my role and just kind of taking people for drinks. I found this one guy in the intelligence community who's like at a management level at a uh, cyber intelligence contractor. And, you know, we just went for drinks and he told me this really weird story about how he had hired somebody recently that had just returned from the Gulf. Hmm. And he said, you know, it was really weird because the guy told him after he hired him, I think, that he had to disclose the fact that he was involved in an FBI investigation. And as yeah, the subject of an FBI, as a subject or as a as a as a as a witness, he had been involved in an activity that was the subject of an FBI investigation. And what mm-hmm. the activity was was what he had been doing overseas. Mm-hmm. And essentially, he had to disclose the fact that the reason he had actually left his previous job was because his previous job was working for this hacking unit. And one day, he realized that not only had they been hacking it to all these other people on behalf of this government, but that eventually they had started targeting American citizens. 
And when he realized that they had started targeting American citizens and American companies and American banks, he felt that he had to leave that job. But once he came back to the U.S., he was approached by FBI agents to ask him about. Now, that guy wouldn't talk to me, but now I knew that this was happening. This was like secondhand, you know. And you already knew the name? Did the pro- did no, project- no, I, did, I, I didn't know the name. Um, and it was actually a really weird, weird thing that happened because I, I went out with this guy and he told, was telling me this story and I got really drunk. I mean, like drunker than I had like ever gotten. And I didn't drink very much. And it was really weird. He'd give, I had like two drinks or three drinks and I was like sick. And the whole thing had this like very suspicious feeling to me because like, you know, I, I don't easily get sick and, mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, did I get dosed and something weird happened? And it was such a weird story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I didn't know what to think of it. And the whole thing was really weird. And I, I called my reporting partner later that night, and I was still, like, really out of it. And, and you can imagine, I'm telling him this crazy story, and I'm all drunk, and he's like, well, all right, why don't we talk about this in the morning? And so what I did, though, was I tried to come up with, we tried to come up with a list of different contractors that people work for with, who have those backgrounds and those skills. And we found that there was a certain, like, overlap that people would work for CyberPoint. Um, What's CyberPoint? So CyberPoint was this Maryland-based cybersecurity company that employs a lot of, like, former hackers from the NSA and other former intelligence types. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's kind of a weird company if you go to their website because you'll see, like, you know, you go to the About Us section and they have, like, employees there. And they'll have, like, pictures of the employees, but their faces are, like, redacted or blacked out or their names are redacted and blacked out. So you get the sense that it's kind of like a little bit of a weird outfit. So what we figured out was that there were, like, these two companies, CyberPoint, and then this Emirati firm called Dark Matter that is an Emirati-based technology company. There had been some writing about them before, even in Foreign Policy magazine. And we figured out that if there were people that worked successively in CyberPoint and Dark Matter, the chances are maybe they were part of this unit. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And at first, like, when we were contacting people, like, this was not a story that they, like, wanted to tell because there was this FBI investigation going on. But we did get this name, Project Raven, that that was what they had been doing out there. And at first, like, people really tried to couch it and say, well, what we were, it was a training mission. We were going out there to, like, teach Emiratis, like, these basic cyber skills. And I was like, well, maybe what I heard was exaggerated. So... We were hearing these kind of conflicting accounts. But then eventually I'd go back to the same people and the story started to evolve. The story mm. started to be like, well, the Emiratis, they don't really have people who can do these operations themselves. So we're kind of teaching them to do it, but we're teaching it sort of by doing it. And then I'm like, well, by doing what? And I'm like, well, so basically like through successive interviews and, and asking the same people the same questions like many, many times, it came out that essentially what the mission was is that they'd be given these targets. And, and targets were individuals. And the targets were individuals, and, and they were governments, mm-hmm. and they were companies. And it was their job to, like, find the vulnerabilities in those people's computers, in those people's emails. And that was through sending phishing messages through what? Yeah, and sometimes it was phishing messages. Sometimes it would be like there would just be vulnerabilities in the systems people were using. Mm-hmm. Like 
sometimes they would go out and they would pay, you know, for outside companies to build software that was like specifically to break into like an iPhone, for example. And all the stuff's very perishable, all right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you build something, it might cost like $10 million to build like a tool that can break into iPhones, but it doesn't mean it's going to last that long because eventually like Apple figures it out. And so what we learned over time was this was not a training mission at all. They were doing everything. The one rule that they had was that in the end, the Emirati officers would have to like be the one to hit enter. So they would mm -hmm. set up the entire like attack and, and they'd be like, okay, this person's using the iPhone, this version, here's the way we can break into that phone. Or they would write the phishing messages even a lot of times. They would case out the system. And then in the end, like after all that was done, they would hand off like that sort of profile of that person and everything would be queued up. And then the Emirati officer would like hit the enter button. And it was literally them hitting the enter button with like the Americans standing over them and telling them to press that. And that gave them sort of the license to like say that this was like advising rather than actually doing. So the Americans then were an essential piece of setting up Project Raven. The Americans were Project Raven. So in your first piece, you yeah. talk about a woman named Lori Stroud. Tell me about her. So Lori was one of the first people who we spoke to extensively in the first story. Like her thing was that she had always worked at the NSA. She didn't go to college. She went straight into the military. And from there, she was at the NSA. And she always had this hankering to go overseas. 9-11 happened. And she thought that she was going to get deployed. But she stayed in Hawaii working at the NSA. And then eventually, this thing happens where she recommends the hiring of Edward Snowden. And, you know, like it ended up being like a really bad hire for her. And... She wasn't fired for it, but she was, like, really on the outs. And so she has this manager call her, and the manager is like, well, you know, I hear things aren't going so well for you. I've just left the NSA myself, and I have this great opportunity. I can't tell you too much about it, but the pay is, like, unbelievable. And she really didn't know exactly what it was going to involve. She knew there was a counterterrorism mission. And, you know, when she told me that, it sounded like a little hard to believe. But as I spoke to more people who worked on Project Raven, they really did not know what was involved in it until they got out to Abu Dhabi because this was like a secret project. Mm -hmm. And when they got out there, they'd first be given this purple briefing. And the purple briefing was, you know, you're being hired to work on this cyber defense capability where you're, you're setting up firewalls and monitoring traffic, you know, and you're not allowed to disclose this. And then once you signed off on the purple briefing, they said, OK, now, are you interested in getting the black briefing? And if you said yes, then you would be given the black briefing. And the black briefing told you that the purple briefing was just the cover story. Wow. And the black briefing was you were going to be involved in a cyber offensive mission, a hacking mission to spy on enemies of this country. And enemies, as you end up finding out, are journalists, human rights workers, all kinds of different people. Yeah, and I, and I should specify, I mean, they, they describe enemies in the beginning as being terrorists. Okay. And, and that's really what people believe that this mission was about going in. Did anyone leave after getting the block briefing? No. Because you're when, already so deep in there. You're, like, in another country. You know, you're set up. And you're also getting paid, like, a lot of money. Like some well, of these, What's a lot of money? What, a what lot of money mean? is, like, a half a million dollars a year. They mm -hmm. didn't all get that, but mm -hmm. a lot of them did. That was not an uncommon And like, they're like, living expenses are covered. Yeah. yeah. I mean, stuff, living expenses are covered. You're getting you're getting anywhere from, like, two upwards of 200000 to a half a million dollars, depending on, like, your level in, in the program. And what were they making at the NSA? The NSA, they're making, like, like 80000 Okay, so this is a significant change. Yeah, this is huge for them. 
And they might even be making less in the military, to be honest. You said they mentioned to them they're talking about terrorists, but who is the UAE targeting at this stage? And let's think about some specific stories that you discover. So I really believe that when the American the Americans first go out there and, and we you know when we talk about this in the story that you know the, the unit was actually set up originally by this famous counterterrorism czar you know Richard Clark I really believe that when it was originally created that they really thought it was going to be for counterterrorism and I really think that there was a legitimate fear of terrorism you know by the Americans for the UAE and, and I think the UAE had a legitimate fear themselves sweet it- Remind the listeners who Richard Clark is. So Richard Clark was responsible for counterterrorism under George W. Bush and Clinton. And he was responsible, most importantly, when 9-11 happened. So but in this case, he launches something called Project Dread. Yeah. So after he leaves the government, he had had like a very long-term relationship with the crown prince of UAE, essentially the leader of the country, People call, uh, you know, Mohammed bin, bin Zayed, or people call him MBZ. Uh, and he had this long-term relationship with him because of his role in counterterrorism. And so he basically pitches this idea that the UAE needs, like, a cyber intelligence capability like the NSA in the U.S. And he pitches this idea, and the UAE agrees that they need this capability and they bring in Richard Clark to set it up, and Richard Clark brings in a couple like subcontractors. The idea really is that they need a way to be able to track what terrorists are doing it to stop Al Qaeda. I really do think that that was like what they believed it would be used for. I do think that in hindsight, there's a little bit of naivete because, you know, this is still like an incredibly autocratic country. And I think giving them a cyber surveillance capability, I think that they didn't consider carefully what the implications of that would be for, like, people who are speaking up against the government internally. Mm -hmm. And I know that they didn't consider that carefully because I asked Richard Clark and I asked, you know, was this a concern for you? Did you express this concern to them at least or put some caveats on their use? And he basically said, our concern here was stopping Mm al-Qaeda. And no matter how I asked him the question, like, he was like, I do not remember that being a concern at the time. And he was not, he was very straightforward about it, actually, like refreshingly so, I thought. But you find that while maybe they went into this thinking that they would be targeting terrorists, the UAE begins to target dissidents, human rights activists and journalists. Yeah. Can you tell me about a journalist or two that they targeted? Yeah. So the era of spring, which starts like in 2011, really it kind of shifts the whole region in a number of ways. And essentially, you have like this turmoil breaking out in countries all around the UAE, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like you have Tunisia and Egypt and Libya and, you know, what's ha- what happened in Syria. And all the Gulf countries get really worried that this kind of tumult is going to spread to their region and that you're going to have, you know, demonstrators on the streets that are calling for change and maybe something that could even lead to like a violent overthrow of these governments. And that's something that really shifts the focus for these operatives that are working on Project Raven. So up until then, I mean, the project's still just kind of getting set up. It starts in 2009, 2010, and 2011 happens. And they start to say, well, we're not just interested in counterterrorism, but we're also interested in national security targets. And national Mm -hmm. security targets was kind of the coding for 
people that were seen as a threat to the government, not necessarily because of terrorism, but because of the types of things that they were saying. So, for example, that pertains to the people who were part of the Muslim Brotherhood movement, who are calling for like a different type of government, a government that is uh, you know, more like leaning towards Islam. And even if they're not calling for the overthrow of the government, the fact that they're pushing for a different type of leadership is seen as like a real threat to that government. But Pretty quickly, their fear extends even past just like the Muslim Brotherhood members to people like, you know, I, we wrote about this guy named Rory Donafi because this guy He's was a British this, journalist. He's a British journalist. And, and he's British, based in the UK. He's based in the UK. And he was really just like a guy who graduated college and was looking for some kind of like do-gooder activities overseas. So he started like a WordPress blog and he just called it like the Emirati Human Rights Center. And essentially at the beginning, I think it was just like reprinting like Human Rights Watch press releases. But because he had like Emirati in the name of the blog, I think it turned up like high like search results because there's just not that many people at the time who were writing about the UAE. And so, you know, you can imagine in the UAE, government officials are like kind of Googling the name of the country a lot and human rights concerns. And his blog is like coming up at like the top of those search results so that they start to see this guy for that reason as being a major threat, even though he's like a blogger, he's like somebody nobody really like knew about or cared about. They start to see him as being a major threat, and they give him this code name Gyro. And this is, like, incredible to be even saying this now, but he becomes, like, their primary target, like, higher up than, like, Al-Qaeda or Iranian targets or Muslim Brotherhood members. Like, Rory Donafi becomes, like, somebody who they, like, are full-time tracking. And does that mean they've hacked his phone? What does so it mean? Ha- it means that they've hacked his phone. It means they've hacked his email accounts. They've hacked his parents' email accounts. You know, he has a disabled brother. And they've hacked, like, support groups for that disability that his parents belong to as a way of trying to get into his parents' accounts. They've hacked his disabled brother's iPad. They've gone after him, like, in this, like, really, like, full-on way. And the Americans are right at the center of this operation. They conduct this operation. They craft the emails that go to him. And the emails are like, you know, Rory, we're human rights defenders in the UAE, and we need your help. And, you know, if, if only you could install this special, like, messaging software so that we could communicate, you know. And he uh, does that. And he does that. And, and in hindsight, it, you know, in hindsight, it doesn't seem like a great move. But, like, he does yeah, at the time. I mean, he, he just the idea that people were going to be targeting him like that was something that really surprised him quite a bit. Outside of the creepiness of it, does it have an impact on his day to day life? Do they or is it mostly about the fact that he's so incredibly tracked and he's pretty much just this guy with a blog? Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, there are a lot of different cases. These guys were tracking like thousands of people. Right. And so for like Rory Donafi, it really had almost no impact at all. Right. Mm -hmm. The guy lives in the UK. You know, he's being tracked. But it doesn't really impact him at all. In fact, you know, he doesn't even know about it until we call him. Like he found out about it because we're like, hey, Rory, you know, you don't know us. But like, it's just really a weird thing. We got all this documentation and you know, these guys have been tracking you for, like, years. There's, like, thousands of files on you, you know, mm. like every website you visit and emails you send. And, you know, I just wanted to give you a heads up. Now, for him, it doesn't have a very big impact. But for mm. the people he's talking to, it has a tremendous impact. And who are the people he's talking to? So he's talking to, like, human rights advocates in the UAE, such as Ahmed Mansour, who, you know, is somebody who's, like, kind of speaking up for civil and human rights in the UAE. And he's based in the UAE. And he's based in the UAE. He's an Emirati guy and, and 
it has a tremendous impact, and we know this because we got the documents, the uh, sort of PowerPoint presentations that Project Raven gave to the Emirati security forces, where they say, here's conversations between Rory Donafi and Ahmed Mansour, which shows that Ahmed Mansour is uh, speaking ill of the UAE to these outside agitators, you know, and they use that as evidence against him. And Ahmed Mansour actually was detained. He's in jail now, and, and he was tortured. And he was like one of like a number of people we found who Project Raven was involved in their surveillance that ended up getting tortured. Did any of the Americans come to know the consequences of what was happening to the people that they were targeting? Yeah, yeah, they knew the consequences. Um, I think something that should be mentioned about the Americans sort of in their defense slightly is, you know, these are not political scientists. These are not people with big geopolitical insights broad understanding about the region. Mm -hmm. They they weren't living in the region before, for the most part. They get brought out there. They have like a very narrow mission, you know, beyond the idea of getting into these people's computers and collecting their emails and doing a very basic level of analysis of who they're talking to and the types of things they're saying. They don't have like the bigger picture thinking about this. So a lot of times I would ask them, I'd be like, well, you know, doesn't it seem weird that you like were involved in the detention of like this guy, that you're spying on these journalists? In other cases, they were like spying on like, you know, a woman who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Like, don't you think that's kind of odd? They're like, well, we don't know. I mean, maybe uh, Rory Donafi is involved in some kind of like terror, you know, operation in some broad way. I mean, how, how do I know? So I mean, they don't look at the big picture. They don't understand the big picture. And they very much don't see it as their job to, to look at the big picture because you have to remember they're coming from a U.S. military background. And even though they're not like answering to the U.S. military anymore, they, they very much see it as their job to kind of like follow orders and to sort of do what they're told in this sense, that it, they're not going to know the whole like reason why this person might pose a threat. They're being told that they pose a threat. And to them, it seems like reasonable. You know, OK, this guy's a Muslim Brotherhood member. He hasn't committed any crime that I know about. But that doesn't mean that he, he hasn't committed a crime that I don't know about. So they, they kind of normalize it for a long time. And, you know, and for some of these people, even after they left, although they regretted some of the actions, like by and large, a lot of them still see most of this as being okay. The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat, climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel, and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts. So Lori Stroud, that first character you mentioned, she becomes aware that Project Raven is also targeting Americans. Yeah. How how did she find that out? So targeting Americans had always been a little bit of an issue on Project Raven in the sense that like when you're doing a lot of surveillance you're inevitably going to end up running into, like, people from the United States. Because, like, even if they're not the initial target, maybe they're someone who the target's talking to. And, you know, for a lot of the operatives, maybe that wasn't such a big deal. But for Lori, like, she really came from this background at the NSA where, like, targeting Americans was seen as being, like, a big no-no. And it was kind of a line that at the NSA they weren't supposed to cross, and they had, like, a protocol for it. And for Lori, when she saw that Americans did come under collection, she, you know, would complain about it. And they created sort of, because of her complaints, 
and being a squeaky wheel, they created kind of a protocol for how they're supposed to handle it when they come across U.S. citizens. This is at Project Raven. At Project Raven. Yeah. And for a while, they abide by that protocol. The protocol was, okay, you spot the American citizens targeted, then... You know, you notify this person, and then the information gets purged from the system, et cetera. She created that protocol? Yeah, she created that protocol, along with her manager. Mm -hmm. And for a while, she was okay with that. I sort of accepted that answer. But she started seeing, like, it more and more, and then she would flag it. And she started to feel like maybe she's flagging these things, and actually, like, if she's discovering that the people are under collection again, like, a few weeks later, maybe— Maybe they're just kind of saying this to make her feel better. And she started worrying about that. And eventually, because she was in a management position over other analysts, she was in a position to kind of go through their kind of work assignments. And she started going through work assignments of other people that were that she was supposed to be supervising and started finding that other information was being collected on Americans. And when she noticed that, she started doing a search of all the work queues of all like the lists of assignments. And what she found was that there was actually like a secret list that they called the white list. Hmm. And the white list was like the code that they had given for American targets. And they had tried to put it under a kind of like designation so that she couldn't view it, but she found some way to view it anyway. And then she said, there's an entire list of Americans and she started looking through it. And, you know, and she escalated and she's like, how did I not know that there was this list? And they're like, well, you didn't know because we didn't want you to know about it because you're always complaining about it. So now you're trying to involve yourself in something that you say you don't want to be involved in. She's like, it's not just that I don't want to be doing it. I don't want to be working on a project that is targeting Americans. The idea wasn't that you were just supposed to try to, like, keep it hidden from me. And so that leads to this big blow up. Uh, she ends up half like resigning, kind of being pushed out, saying that she doesn't want to do it anymore. A whole bunch of other Americans kind of leave along with her, you know, either write that or in the, in the coming months. Because although they had been targeting human rights activists, people in the UK, journalists, for them, you know, ethically or morally, for some reason, like the idea of targeting specifically Americans crossed a line. And it, it certainly does cross a legal line for them. Oh, meaning that it causes a legal line for them in, in, under American law? Under American law. American, like, hacking laws are, like, kind of new. And depending on how you interpret the law, basically any hacking is illegal, essentially. But hacking against American citizens is, like, very clearly something that you can't do. You know, there is an approval process for this, right? Like, if you're going to go overseas and, and teach hacking skills to, like, a government, mm -hmm. you need to go through the State Department. And they did, and they got approval. And it seems like the State Department didn't know very much about what they were going to do out there, but they were able to sort of get approval because they were these really politically well-connected guys like Clark. And it seems like the government entities that are supposed to, like, kind of have their arms around this and say, okay, well, maybe we don't want this American know-how and these, like, cyber capabilities going to, like, a bad actor, it doesn't seem like there was a lot of thought about, like, those consequences. And I think as these skills become more accessible and more people have them, I think that you're going to start to see them being used a lot more like by private organizations, by like corporations involved in like legal fights, for example. Why do you think that Stroud and other members of Project Raven decided to talk to you? It's really interesting. It was like they had this story they kind of wanted to tell. And what was really cool about it with Lori was that we got her on the phone and she had this story. And 
we had told her that we were going to talk on background. And she's like, I want to be on the record. I want my credibility as a former NSA analyst to be used to have people believe this, because this is something people need to know that this is going on. So she had a story that she really, really wanted to tell. How much risk did she put herself in by telling it, though? It's something I wonder about a lot myself, and I wonder about it for Lori, and I also wonder about it for myself, you know, because, you know, you're talking about a state-level hacking organization that has shown a real willingness to target people overseas, to put them under surveillance. Meaning you're at risk by telling the story. Yeah, you know— I think there's a very high chance that they would try to at least put her under surveillance as she wasn't already because of the way that she departed. And, you know, something I reflect on a lot now, having done this story, is like, what does that mean to be under surveillance all the time? Mm -hmm. And we had, like, sort of the unfortunate task of getting, like, you know, like thousands of documents of, like, the files of people that were under surveillance, the emails that they were sending, and somewhat intimate things about their lives. And... You know, you start to wonder, well, what does that mean to be under surveillance? How does that affect your life? Does it have any meaning? Like for Rory Donofue, for example, it was really creepy to find out about, but it didn't have a great effect on his life one way or the other, as far as I know. For other people, like if you're in a different kind of country, you know, it means it can be, you end up in jail. I thought a lot about like for Lori, who now lives back in the United States, or for myself, like or for my family members who might be placed under surveillance as a result of working on the project or, for, you know, what does that actually mean? And you know, it's something that I've like lived with now for like a year and a half, like this idea that it's not just paranoia, like there really is a pretty high chance that like based on what we were reporting that they would put us under surveillance. And we know a lot about how they do that and the different methods. And I mean, there's all sorts of stuff they can do. They could get into your phone and use the microphone of your phone to like listen to your actual voice conversations. They could go through all your text messages, your emails, your communications with family. They hacked into the, the baby cameras of people, the, the daddy cabs or whatever. And you think a lot about, well, how does that change your behavior when you feel like you're like under constant watch? And it's interesting because you do find that there's a subtle shift that like ends up getting embedded in your life where you're like, oh, well, you just kind of have in mind that there might be these watchers, you know, that are like with you all the time. And in some very subtle way, it kind of influences your behavior, influences things you say, influences somehow how you think. It's a very strange thing, even though there might not be like a concrete risk, you know, in terms of like a danger to your life. Did it change the way you did anything in terms of, for example, you have a new baby um, sending photos of your son? Did it change something about that? Yeah, it did. It changes the kinds of conversations that you feel like you're comfortable to have with people, mm-hmm. certainly over the phone and sometimes even not on the phone, because you're like wondering how that's going to be examined or looked at later mm-hmm. and how it's going to be thought about. It's almost like if you think about somebody who's very religious and believes like God is like listening to every word that they say all the time, you know, that has like a lot of effect on the type of speech they have. You know, you kind of have that same sense of this omnipresent, you know, watcher. So when we had our baby, I think I kind of took the opposite thought of it where I was like, well, and so I'm going to just kind of like lay everything out there. You know, before I always kind of looked out at people who posted too much stuff about their baby on Facebook. But then I was like, well, I want at least like my mother to know about as much about this baby as Project Raven does, you know. Joel, there's a bigger question. What do we do about offensive cyber capabilities if they fall into the hands of bad regimes or terrorist groups? I mean, here we were talking about state-sponsored surveillance, but what if it was to fall into the hands of a rogue agent of some kind? 
by the end of Project Raven, I mean, you know, you have them hacking into like the iPhones of, you know, of, of a woman who won like Nobel Peace Prize, of like a BBC host. Um, I don't want to say that I can't imagine someone who's like more rogue than Project Raven, but I think that that's actually what's happened. I think that this capability fell into the hands of like a government that is willing to use it fully to like suppress free speech. Uh, they used it against that woman, Lujain Al-Hatlul, who, uh, you know, she was the, the Saudi woman who... She's um, a driving rights activist. She's a driving rights activist. And they used it against her. And then the, the UAE detained her and sent her back to Saudi where she was like tortured. And so I think that's actually like the world that we're like in now. I think that Project Raven is probably just like one of God knows how many cases where these capabilities that were developed in the United States and this like trade craft that was developed in the United States. And whenever you think about like the U.S.'s like human rights record, ostensibly there are some limitations or you hope that there are some like laws that bind the U.S. has had in terms of like using it at least against people who question the U.S. government internally, right? But now, you know, we placed it in the hands of a country that like appears to have no like compunction whatsoever using against people who speak ill of like a monarch. Does Project Raven continue? Yeah, I believe that Project Raven still exists now. I mean, I had visibility into it you know, going into 2019, and I, I, I believe that it still continues now. My understanding is that because of the heat from the series, they're shifting a little bit away from hiring Americans towards hiring nationals from, like, Russia. Joel, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That was Joel Schechtman, an investigative reporter for Reuters, who, together with his Reuters colleague, Christopher Bing, wrote a series of stories in the past year about the UAE's hacking program. First Person is produced by me, Sarah Wildman, along with help from Dan Haverty. Our executive editor for news and podcasts is Dan Efron, and our editor is Rob Sachs. If you like this episode, hit subscribe and check out some of our earlier interviews. Panoply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 